Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. All right, everybody, we'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Um, Acts chapter 6. Many people have commented about how it's getting harder and harder to go to sporting events these days because of the uncivil behavior is exhibited by so many in attendance, you know. And uh, to, to me, it's even more disturbing trend. Sometimes you see uh, there's an increase in the number of shirts the athletes themselves are wearing that have rude taunts on them directed at their opponents, you know, like, I'm not just going to beat you, I'm going to wear you out, you know, or whatever it is, and you've seen some of those too. Um, and, uh, you know, for insecure people, it's not enough just to defeat your opponent. You try to want to have to humiliate them to get back for the times you've been humiliated and stuff. Uh, but hear, my we- hear me well, beating a person at a, another person at a game does not mean you're a better person. It just doesn't. You know, it means you won that particular game. And um, the quality of the person you are is going to be seen in how you handle things. And sometimes it's how you handle defeat. Other times it's how you handle victory. By the way, I should say, um, pass this little law along to everybody uh, body you know that cheers at a game. What you want to do is you want to cheer for your team but you don't want to jeer for the other team, right? Especially if you're talking about students. Uh, you know, because sometimes a, 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 there'll be a player on the other team that'll do something. The whole uh, home team wants to go out there and just strangle them, you know? Uh, but you've got to resist that urge. They're still just kids, you know? And so you want to cheer for your team. You don't want to jeer for the other team. And, uh, but how you handle defeat or victory uh, is such a key thing in life. Now, I'm sure at some time in your life you've heard the little song sung to taunt another person. Anything you can do, I can do better, right? Um, no, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. You remember that song? In the, um, and this is yet another thing I love about Jesus. No one is greater than Jesus, yet Jesus proclaimed that his followers would do greater works than he had done. There's your first fill in the blank. So no one's greater than Jesus, yet Jesus proclaimed that his followers would do greater works than he had done. And so, of course, no one's greater than Jesus. He's God, right? He created all things, stepped into time, lived a sinless life, the only one to ever do that. The rest of us have led sinful lives. And so that made him able to be a sacrifice for our sins. His great love made him our champion for what he did on the cross. He died in our place of judgment, right? John 14, 12, he said, I assure you, the one who believes in me will also do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. And so when we think about that taunt, anything you can do, I can do better, Jesus actually reversed that for his disciples and said, anything I can do, you can do better. If you do it in my name, empowered by my spirit, you're going to actually corporately do more than I did when I was here. And you think about that, there's many ways that's true. You know, Jesus, uh, when he went up to heaven, had 120 gathering in his name for prayer. It said that he appeared to 500, but there were 120 in the upper room there praying. 
And, uh, you know, so he had people committed, but even in the Sermon on the Mount, it says at the end of it, they worshiped him, but some doubted, you know. And he commissioned them to do this great thing we've been reading about in the book of Acts. Well, then Peter comes and preaches. 3,000 are saved on the day of Pentecost. And then a a couple chapters later, 2,000 more get saved. The church gets up to 5,000. And so it didn't take long to have uh, Jesus' prophecy there that what he had done, they'd be able to do uh, corporately in a greater way. And if you think about 3,000 getting saved on the day of Pentecost, Well, we're told now that 3,000 people are saved every hour around the world because of the work of missionaries and Christians praying and witnessing and seeing people come to Christ. So that's pretty neat, isn't it? When you put the numbers together, there's a Pentecost every hour uh, around the world, which is pretty cool. Fred Smith had this great quote, A leader is not a person who can do the work better than his followers. He's a person who can get his followers to do the work better than he can. I love the saying, I can't, but Jesus never said I could. Jesus can in and through me, and he promised that he would. And he promised that he would do it in and through us, especially as we work together also. So, unfortunately, historically, some have looked at Peter's role in the book of Acts, and they have elevated him to a position higher than the other apostles and called him the first pope. Um, And you just don't see him thinking in those terms, I'm better than you, uh, or I'm greater than you, or I'm a greater leader than his other apostles on the team. Now, he may have been the first among equals, is what we would say. Later, James is going to be the head elder at the church in Jerusalem, and it looks like he was the first among equals. Uh, So within a plurality of leaders, churches are to have a first among equals. I mean, somebody's got to be the guy you look at, you know, and and Peter was that for the, uh, but he never would have said, I am better than Jesus or I am better than anybody that came after him. The Roman Catholic Church went on to create a system never intended by by the Bible. And what they did was they brought back the priestly language of the Old Testament uh, and they had those popes and those priests under them in this network going all the way up to Rome where the priest was a mediator between you and God. In fact, a later pope, about the year 1000 or so, went on to say, I am the mediator between God and men. Do what? So wait, wait, what? Pope, was it Leo? Uh, You're the mediator between God and men? Where'd you get the idea that you're the mediator between God and men? Well, the Catholic Church tells me I am. They made me pope. I'm the mediator between God and men. As late as 1870, I think it was, during the Vatican I Council, the um, Catholic Church came up with the doctrine of papal infallibility. So it's all that time later they said when the Pope is sitting in that chair of his and makes a ruling about a doctrine, it is as good as doctrine after that. Well, that's just crazy to think in terms of that. You know who's got a problem like that today? The Mormon Church. Now, of course, Catholics at least hold the, the, the biblical doctrine that's been established in the Apostles' Creed and other things, you know. Mormons don't. They're definitely a cult. They use some of the same words Christians do, but mean completely different things by them. But their most recent, uh, they, they elect a guy to be the president of the church, and they say when he says something, it goes for the church from that time forward. And, uh, you know, so... Um, you know, this past year, he angered some Mormons by saying, uh, I don't want to use the word Mormon anymore. This is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Don't call it the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Just call it the Tabernacle Choir. Oh, no, we've got a Tabernacle Choir, but we're the Baptist Tabernacle. You know, we're not the Mormon Tabernacle. But anyway, uh, over the years, the president of the Mormon Church has changed their whole doctrine just by sitting and saying something, you know. 
and so very dangerous. But the Scripture says that Jesus Christ is the sole mediator between God and men, right? And He claims that for Himself. Nobody else gets to get in on that. And so you cannot uh, make people priests that are go-betweens between a person and God. It's simply not what we teach as are we Protestants? Uh, that's a debate too. Uh, Protestants protested the Catholic Church system and came out of there, um, and, uh, but they also had state churches where the state was still affiliated with the churches. We're among a group, kind of not even underneath that, but influenced by that Protestant Reformation. Uh, Baptists have said, wait a second, the Reformation didn't go far enough. Uh, you know, once you get to uh, we're so glad for the great doctrines that you're saved by God's grace alone, through your faith alone, and Christ alone. We're glad that we've gotten back to the sufficiency of scriptures. But you can't have church and state tied together. No, church and state are separated and you're born into the state, but you're born again into the church. The way that people know that's happened is when you submit yourself to be baptized and become a member of a local church. So the New Testament says that because of what Christ has done, we don't go to a priest. Christians are priests in the sense that we can go directly in God, uh, to, to God in prayer and Bible study and also help others make their peace with God. So the way that we're priests is not that um, people need us to connect them with God, kind of bring them both together like Jesus did as the God-man. The way that we're priests is we pray for people. We share scripture with them. And if we help them make their peace with God, then we practice the priesthood of the believer. But they can go directly to God themselves from that time afterwards, you know, and influence others for the Lord. Um, so, unfortunately, many times, even in Baptist churches, the average person in their thinking elevates the paid preacher, somebody like me. That's why I try to be a little goofy, so people won't think of me too elevated, you know. Um, the average person in their thinking elevates the paid preacher to a priest-like role and believes the lie that anything they could do for Jesus, the pastor could do better. Yeah, I can do some things for Jesus, but the pastor can do them better. Why? Because he's the pastor. Well, wait a second, we don't think of our pastors the way others think of priests. Yeah, but I just want to keep thinking about it that way, you know. And um, in today's passage, we're going to see that anything the apostle Peter could do, the deacon Stephen could also do, and that encourages all of us to make the difference Jesus has called us to make for Him. So Acts chapter 6, and we're looking at verses 8 through 15 after that rather lengthy introduction. It says, now, now remember what happened last time? Last time we saw uh, the first deacons called out, right? And set aside to, to uh, help meet the physical needs in the life of the church. Um, and it mentioned their names, and it mentioned that because the uh, pastors could then, the apostles could focus in on their role in preaching and prayer, uh, and that serving the church that way, deaconing that, as these other men came alongside and helped deacon the physical needs of the congregation, that uh, the, the whole thing grew, right? And so let's just look at it again. It says, verse 7, Then the word of God spread, the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And now we learn more about the man Stephen. Verse 8 says, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, him meaning Stephen, 
they seized him and brought him to the council. They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. And so the title of this message is Stephen can do what Peter can do. And it's going to take three messages to get through the life and impact of Stephen. So today we're looking at Stephen's ministry. Next time we're going to look at Stephen's message. And then the week after that, we'll look at Stephen's martyrdom. Isn't that great? Doesn't that flow? The M's there. His, his ministry this week, message next week, and martyrdom the week after that. So verse 8, Stephen can do what Peter can do, meet pressing needs. There's your fill in the blank, meet pressing needs. We learned this about the deacons in verse 3. It said that they were full of spirit and wisdom. Verse 5 told us they were full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And to that we add verse 8 saying they were full of God's grace and power. So what did we do when we were going through the Gospels? When you read through the Gospels, you marvel at the miracles of Jesus. And in Acts so far, we've marveled at the miracles that Peter did in the name of Jesus. Here we're told that after relieving the apostles of the benevolence duties by creating deacons, Stephen the deacon was able to also perform great wonders and signs among the people. Man, I wish I had some deacons like that. And the deacons say, man, I wish I had a pastor like that that could just, uh, you know, every time praying and healing and all the different things and stuff like that. We understand some of these things were part of this confirmation of the gospel and these apostles during the apostolic age. Although, let me quickly say, if you can pray for uh, somebody and they get healed, do it. Give God the glory, but do it. Don't ever let me say, oh, miracles like that don't exist today. Well, they do exist, but God gets the glory. This makes you wonder. So Stephen and his fellow deacons were set aside to go to the homes of the widows and others with needs. It probably expanded out to meeting other needs, but particularly the widows in the life of the church. They were particularly concerned that um, the... Um, the different background widows weren't being ministered to as well, and so the Hebrew background uh, uh, apostles, uh, the people, not they said, give us some people to work with. And the congregation said, listen, if it's a problem meeting the needs of the Hellenistic uh, background people, let's make sure we pick some Hellenist background men to help meet that need. And so they speak the language, know the culture, they can get out there and do that. And so we're going to uh, do that. But it does make you wonder... So suppose you texted the church office back in that day. That itself would be interesting because they didn't have texting. Um, but suppose you sent the message to the church and they said, okay, we've got a need, come meet it. And you're used to getting one of the apostles. You get Peter. You get John. You get Matthew. You get the other Judas. And you're glad because these are the, man, these are the heavyweights, right? The pastor, big guys coming to, coming to see us, right? I, I know it was super special anytime you ever got to have Lamar Mooneyham come to your house, you know, or something like that. This is the big ones, Peter, right? Those kind of guys. So the next time you have a need and you send for the church, send, send somebody to meet the need, it's not Peter, it's Stephen. <laughs> it's Stephen. Stephen, the kid that you played with your kids growing up. 
You know, it's Stephen. And uh, it makes you wonder if there arose a new complaint, complaint when deacons came instead of these apostles. Reckon? Reckon? Uh, people are like that, aren't they? My neighbor is here because we thought Peter was coming by. She has a fever. Doesn't Peter care? I mean, you can almost see that going on, right? And, well, what would you do if you're Stephen and you've gone to meet this need? He said, well, lady, I'm no Peter, but I'm here. And, and I can pray for your friend in Jesus' name, the powers in Jesus to heal, not, not Peter, you know. He's the one that will uh, meet the need. And so the lady sighs and says, well, I guess so, you know. So Stephen prayed and pow. Well, who are you going to want to come the next time? You're going to want Stephen to come, right? Because the need got met and it was wonderful. Stephen is able to work wonders also just like Peter did. And in this case, it's meeting needs. And so if you can pray for somebody and a miracle happens, do it. But, uh, you know, together we can meet needs by bringing groceries, by bringing other things to help, etc. like that. And um, uh, tremendous. There's uh, certainly, again, something about this time as a special time of redemptive history, the beginning days of the church. Uh, there's, there's no command in the rest of scriptures to speak in tongues. There's no command to, uh, you know, be a healing worker and, and those type things. So there's miraculous things. Uh, we're not commanded to, to do the way that we're um, commanded to um, love one another in Jesus' name and those type things. But just as God vindicated the apostolic message through miracles, God validated Stephen's ministry and message with these miracles. It was also, though, catch me here because this translates to today, it was also a validation that every member ministry is what God has always intended. I love Titus 3.14. Paul's writing to Timothy, Titus. Titus is there just like Timothy. To, 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 he's on that island and he's supposed to teach those folks how to do church. And one of the last things Paul said to them is he said, Hey, Titus, our people must also learn to devote themselves to good works for cases of urgent need so they will not be unfruitful. How are you fruitful? A key part of that is meeting urgent needs that you come across. Um, and of course, it's the church's privilege to do that together, but also Paul wanted everybody to get in on it. He said, Paul said, didn't say to Titus, Titus, make sure you're out there meeting every need. He didn't say, Titus, make sure you get the, even the deacons out there meeting every need. Teach our people, teach them all to meet the pressing needs they come across. So what a great thing. Stephen can do what Peter can do. He can meet pressing needs. Well, then in verses 9 and 10, we see Stephen can do what Peter can do, defend and advance the gospel. So advance is your fill in the blank there. So as Stephen was out there ministering and meeting needs and praying for people and seeing them healed, crowds began to form and ask him how those healings were happening. And, uh, you know, if we did this too many times like we do today, we'd say, oh, wow, they got questions, and I'm just a deacon. I'm just a church member. I better get the pastor in on this. Uh, hopefully he'll come, and he can, he can talk to him about the Lord and about these things in the Scripture. Apparently they trained Stephen that if he was out there and meeting needs and an opportunity came to share the gospel, go ahead and take it, Stephen. And he did. He, he did right here. He does. Um, Peter later wrote, Set apart the Messiah as Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. And so Stephen was ready. He'd learned enough. And I'll tell you what, I'm looking at people here, and many are going to be listening to this later, and it's very humbling to, to think that every single member of the tabernacle that's been in church 
five years or longer, has more training in the Scriptures than most third world pastors. The pastors in many countries in the world know less Scripture than you already do. So don't think I can't share with others because I haven't been trained and I don't know enough yet. Just being in church and Sunday school and the other things like this that we do, I can just about guarantee it. Uh, back when I taught the pastors in Tanzania, Tanzania through the book of Revelation so they could teach, I was teaching 50 pastors who were going to go to 25 bush schools and those were going to keep on teaching the material. They're still doing it today and it was going to influence hundreds of church leaders who were going to do all that out there. Who'd they send me? They sent me some really sharp guys, but some of the guys that were there were asking basic, such basic questions, kind of questions our third graders ask about the scriptures, who are just getting started in the Word, the kind of questions a brand new believer asks, and some of them probably were brand new believers, right? And uh, I know enough about not only the Africa situation, but the Asia situation and the Latin American situation to know that my statement is true. Uh, if you've been in church five years or longer and applied yourself, you already have more information. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? So then as now Jerusalem was divided up into different quarters with people from different nationalities living together. And in those, we'll call them ghettos, we don't mean what comes into your mind when you think ghetto. A ghetto is just a way to refer to a, uh, a neighborhood uh, that is uh, very much the word would be homogeneous, meaning it's the same kind of people in that neighborhood, a ghetto. Uh, so there were, the, there were synagogues in those ghettos that had, were, were, there was Greek-speaking Jews like Stephen himself had been. We learned that in the first part of chapter 6, that he himself was from a Hellenistic or Greek-speaking background. And uh, there they learned the scriptures in Greek instead of Hebrew. They uh, practiced the um, uh, Passover and all those things in Greek instead of Hebrew and they were there to learn more about their Jewish faith. So, there are two sets of Hellenistic or Greek-speaking Jews in Jerusalem that are debating as these passages goes along. Stephen represented those who believed Jesus was their Messiah. They had turned to Christ, um, and now he was a deacon for that early church. The freedmen, it says here, it calls them the synagogue of the freedmen, were those who did not believe that Jesus was their Messiah. So they're still uh, all the way Jews, but they had not accepted Jesus as their Messiah in the city Jesus had died in just a few months before and rose from the dead. And so you've got uh, Jesus being the dividing issue for them. And he said he would be that, right? He, he made very clear, this, uh, this message here is going to divide households. There's going to be fathers against sons. There's going to be uh, husbands against wives. There's going to be in-laws and against each other, daughter-in-law, mother-in-law, and things like that. There's going to be a, a, a it's going to be a source of tension between those who follow Jesus and those who don't. Culturally, they were all thinking about cultural type things from back home, and they appreciated their Jewish identity, but. The Old Testament had called for a Messiah. Some knew Jesus was that Messiah and were following Him, and others didn't, and it created tension, still does today. Now, the synagogue of the freedmen were descendants of Jewish slaves that were captured by, by Pompey in 63 B.C. and taken to Rome. Uh, this is according to John MacArthur. They were later freed and formed a Jewish community there. So that's part of what that language comes from. So where is Cyrene? Uh, where is Cyrene? Do you know where Cyrene is? 
Simon the Cyrenian that carried uh, Jesus' cross uh, the rest of the way up the hill. Uh, North Africa. Cyrene's a city in North Africa. So was Alexandria. Alexandria was in Egypt on the mouth of the Nile River. Apollos was from there. Um, uh, now, I'll tell you this. Uh, one thing that every once in a while you may hear of something Muslims in North Africa do. They say, Christianity is, uh, you know, is a European religion. And uh, so if you live here in North Africa, you need to be a Muslim. And they're just completely wrong. Do you know one of the earliest hotbeds of the Christian faith was North Africa? All along that, it'd be where the, where the Mediterranean Sea comes down and meets Africa. Oh my goodness, Alexandria, Egypt, one of the early centers of Christian learning. In fact, Greeks too, that's where the Septuagint came from. The 70 scholars that worked on translating the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek language did it in Alexandria, Egypt, one of home's one of the biggest libraries in the world. Go over to Cyrene where Libya is and things like that, Carthage and some of those places and things like that. Those were African expressions of the faith, North Africa, big time things happen. Uh, in fact, I've got a book on my shelf in the office. It's uh, how, uh, how Africa uh, developed the Christian mind. And, you know, so some of the earliest thinkers for Christianity, including the great uh, St. Augustine. St. Augustine was from Hippo there in North Africa. Okay, uh, others we read about here in verse uh, 9 that these guys were from. Not only Cyrenians and Alexandrias, uh, but Asia and Cilicia. Cilicia. Those are Roman provinces in Asia Minor, so modern Turkey is what that would be. Now, um, Tarsus is a city in Cilicia. Who do we know that, that was from there? Saul of Tarsus, right? That became Paul. Actually, he, already, he always was Saul and Paul. Saul was his Hebrew name, his Jewish name, and Paul was his uh, name uh, for the Roman identity and stuff, so he could go, you know, like that. So doesn't this make you wonder? When it says here that they were disputing with Stephen and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke, <laughs> was Paul one of the ones confounded by Stephen's speaking? Man, you think Paul, he was so smart, you'd have to set him up against uh, uh, the most learned among the apostles. But instead, here's Stephen the deacon that's uh, speaking the word and confounding him. Um, you know, now Paul later calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews in Philippians 3, 5. So maybe this was not the case, but he clearly uh, was very upset. We're going to find this out as we go along in the next couple of uh, weeks. He was very, very upset uh, that uh, these, uh, that uh, his fellow Jews of both Hebrew background and Hellenistic background were uh, turning to Christ and did everything he could to stop it. Well, so Stephen can do what Peter can do. He can meet needs. He can defend and advance the gospel. And then in verses 11 through 14, we see Stephen can do what Peter can do. He can stand trial for his beliefs. Trial for his beliefs. Your next fill in the blank. So once again, the book of Acts brings us to a trial before the Sanhedrin, the rulers of Israel. Though this time, it's not an apostle, but it's a layman. It's the deacon Stephen that's there. Uh, look back at chapter 4, verse 13. In chapter 4, verse 13, it said, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And uh, we get that kind of uh, statement here. 
uh, they could not resist the wisdom by which he spoke. And they're like, man, we, just, we, we can't beat this guy in a fair fight. So let's play dirty. <laughs> and they did. It annoyed them that the apostles were nobody. Stephen doing these things must have sent them through the roof. You know, this isn't the apostles. These are the deacons they've set aside. And so we once again come upon Satan's influence and the spiritual warfare that arises when anyone, when I do it, when you do it, when any Christian stands on biblical truth. And uh, I just need to say this. Every once in a while, I run into a, a person that has thoughts about going into the ministry. And I've always tried to portray that there is nothing more rewarding than following God's call and being a minister of the gospel. But there's also a few things more strenuous in your brain and in your psyche because you're out there on the front lines. I have uh, been, I've, I've gone into rooms before and um, been talking to somebody and we're having a great conversation. Sometimes it'll be about soccer or music or something like that. Just having a great conversation. People, somebody I could really connect with, right? And then somebody else comes in the room and said, Oh, I see you've met my pastor, Pastor Danny. And the person's facial expression will just drop. You're a preacher and you just walk away. Happened more than once in my life. Because they've got such... Pastors become lightning rods for what people are thinking about God, right? Jesus told us it would be that way. He said, guys, if they didn't like me, they won't like you. Because <laughs> you're gonna you're gonna be my presence. You're gonna you're gonna still say them they need to turn to Jesus or they go to hell. You know you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna offend them with the truth that they need to hear, don't want to hear. And I'm so appreciative of how many people's testimonies uh, are about somebody offending them, and that being the vehicle to get them to think. We're worried we'll offend people. Well, many people get saved after being offended, but they can't let go of what the preacher said to them that day or what the layman said to them that day or what grandma said to them that day, you know, et cetera. Now, so every once in a while I run into somebody, they want to do the cool things I do as a pastor. I mean, they see, Danny looks like he's having fun doing that. You know, he gets to speak to the crowd. They want to study and teach and preach. Man, that'd be great to do, you know. Um, but they'll basically tell me they want to do it without facing some of the intense things they've seen me or others go through as a pastor. And I usually say back to them, then you do not need to go into the ministry whatsoever in any way. You know. And, uh, you know, there's lots of different rabbit trails we could run down with that. I'll just run down one. If God calls you to sell it all and go get the training and do it, do it. Um, Every once in a while you run into somebody that says, yeah, I want to be a minister, but I want to be a rich businessman too. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put that I'll never have to humbly rely on faith in God, you know, in the church uh, to meet needs. I, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to first get independently wealthy my stuff, and then I'll follow God's call. First of all, you're eating away at some of the best years that you, you, God would have had you do that, you know. Um, but uh, secondly, it, it, it's, it's, it's reveals a lack of faith, but also a certain amount of pride that God may want to break in your life. So I see that kind of thing happen. And again, pastors are lightning rods for what people are spiritually dealing with, and they don't want to be struck by that lightning, these people that uh, have told me these things. And so 
Fortunately, I've seen a lot of people go into the ministry over the years and doing real well, and guys like Joe Fleming, you know, that was recently with us and stuff like that. And uh, I've seen others that took the advice and did something else, and they still do things for the Lord, but they, you know, uh, didn't, uh, you know, they, they, they were trying to have a very fleshly way to pursue what is a life of um, basically uh, complete dependence on God. If you put yourself out there for the gospel, you will be struck by lightning whether you go into full-time ministry or not. We're all, in that sense, ministers and you know, servants of the Lord. So in heaven, it's all going to be worth it, but on earth, there will be trouble. <laughs> I think you may have all heard this before, but I always love to tell the story here. When I was first in church, and the deacons poked me in the stomach and said, you're staying out of trouble, aren't you, young man? Young man, you're staying out of trouble, aren't you? And uh, after a couple weeks of that, I came in the door and I said... Uh, uh, listen, I'm not trying to stay out of trouble. Jesus told me in this world I would have trouble. Uh, I'm trying to get in trouble for the right reasons. <laughs> and the guy looked at me funny, you know, and uh, quizzically. And then the next week when I came in the door, he greeted me again with, you're staying out of trouble, aren't you? So I didn't realize that was the Baptist greeting. But to, the, to this day, whenever I hear somebody say, you're staying out of trouble, aren't you? It's like, Jesus didn't tell me to stay out of trouble. He told me to serve him and I'll get in trouble for the right reasons. Um, well, here we see the same deceit and conspiracy we saw against Jesus. What do they accuse him of? In verse 11, what do they accuse him of? Blasphemy. And what was blasphemy punishable by death in the Mosaic law? How did they, how did they, how did they do it? How did they do it? They stoned you. Leviticus 24, 16 called for stoning. And of course, that was illegal under Roman rule. And that's why Jesus was crucified when they turned him over to the... Uh, uh, to the uh, uh, Romans, uh, Jewish leaders turn them over to the Romans there. But uh, Stephen, man, they're getting upset by this point, man. Uh, we, we can't wait for the Romans to act now. This thing's getting out of hand. And so we're going to see how that ends up for Stephen as we go along here. Um, now next time in chapter 7, we're going to see what Stephen was saying to them that made them so mad. But it's encapsulated in the words of Jesus. John 5, 39 and 40, Jesus said, You pour over the Scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. Yet the scriptures, they testify about me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. And so we're going to see in Stephen's message, it's just like Peter's. He's making the connection that uh, the Old Testament looked forward to a coming Messiah who would suffer for sins. Jesus has done that. He's coming back to judge. You better be ready for him to be your judge because you've turned to him in faith, right? So, well, we got a final point here. And you know it's not Stephen can do what Peter can do because we've been through those, but Stephen can do what Moses did. Glow because of time spent with God. So in verse 15, it says, And all who sat in the council looking steadfastly at Stephen saw his face as the face of an angel. He's glowing. Um, it says that his face glowed like that of an angel. So do you see what's happening here? They accused him of speaking contrary to what Moses had said, the prophecies Moses had about the Messiah. But in all of the scriptures, when you think of someone's face glowing, who do you think of? Think of Moses, right? His time spent with God, his face is glowing, and people go, whoa, dude, you know? And because um, he'd met with God. As Stephen begins to answer their charge, his face is glowing just like the great Moses had. He's not the key leader for Israel. He's not the apostle Peter. He's Stephen the deacon doing this, right? And uh, somebody that was there that day had to later report this to Luke so he could write it down. 
Who do you think might have later reported it to Luke so Luke could write it down? I wonder if it was Saul. Because we know Saul's involved in the execution of Stephen that's coming up here. He held the robes, right? And he probably was more like Al Capone. I'm holding the robes. Sick them, fellas! You know, right? And uh, so, but after he was converted, the one thing he couldn't get past was that look, that expression. And I just want to encourage you guys, as you spend time with God in prayer and in Bible study, it may not happen when you're younger, but as you get older and you keep spending time with the Lord, faces have a way of shining. You know, some of you have shiny faces like that from time spent with the Lord. And uh, people like Hilda Smith have shiny faces, time spent with the Lord, right? Um, I like what um, Warren Wiersbe said. It was as if God was saying, this man is not against Moses, he's like Moses. He's my faithful servant. So anything Peter and even Moses can do, Stephen can do. And I'll say to you guys, anything I as a pastor can do, you can do better. And we can do better. So the key is that you glow because of knowing Jesus personally. That you grow through time in the Bible and with other believers. And that you go wherever God has for you to go, sharing His love and truth with the lost. Now, David wants to hear that again. How do you glow? It's through that personal relationship with the Lord. You're spending time with Him. Um, you know, the great saints of old talked about not just coming together for corporate worship, but your personal worship of the Lord. Uh, you know, I won't, uh, we can probably replace the hymnals, you know, all the hymnals we have in there, some are over here and we put everything up on the screen now. If you don't have a hymnal, you can go ahead and borrow one. I'm giving you permission, you know, if that would help you in your personal time of worship as you spend some time in scripture and then sing a song, you know, like that. Uh, you grow through time in the Bible and with other believers. So you glow because of time spent with God. You grow because of time in the Word and with other believers. And then you go wherever God has for you to go, sharing His love and truth with the lost. Even when they're mad enough to kill you. Like our friend Stephen here, our brother in Christ. Now look back at verse 7. It says that as a result of their good Handling a business, verse 7, the word of God spread, the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Perhaps part of that large group of priests believed not just because of Peter's witness, but also Stephen and his fellow deacons and others. So the question we have as we close here is, who needs to be a recipient of your ministry and witness? Um, don't ever say it could happen if, if Danny was here, or somebody else was here. There are people that God puts in your sphere of influence, and they'll never hear it from Danny as well as they'll hear it from you. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.